You ever been rappelling before? Backing off a, a rock face attached to a rope and lowering yourself down over the edge of a cliff? Remember, I got to do that the, the one and only time I've ever done it. I, I guess I would do it again. I, I don't know. I've never had the opportunity, but I, I suppose maybe I would. But I remember being insanely nervous the first time. I was a senior in high school. It was our senior trip. We went to Colorado and uh, did some rappelling while we were there. And I remember getting hooked into the, the harness and everything and asking the guy that was there, is this rope going to hold me? And like, what's he going to say? Uh, no, it's not. But see on the, the bottom side of the mountain. No, he said, yeah. In fact, he, he tells me, he goes, yeah, the rope's been tested and it's rated up to 2,000 pounds. Well, in high school, I weighed like 150 pounds, like sopping wet. So I said, okay, fine, 2,000 pounds is fine, but what about 150? Has it been rated for 150 pounds? Is it too frail? Am I going to die? Am I going to fall off? Right? I wanted confidence in the rope, that the rope was going to hold me. It was going to keep me. I wanted to be able to trust it. It's hard to find something in today's world that we can really trust in or have much confidence in at all. We live in the world of Yelp, right? So you want to go out to get something to eat, and you think, well, let's jump on Yelp and find a restaurant and find the reviews. And you read through the reviews, and you think, okay, this place has four and a half stars out of five stars, and it's got 3,000 ratings. And so you maybe decide to go there, and you read, and you say, we should get this when we go there, because total strangers who we know nothing about that may have the worst palace on the face of the planet, this could have been people with COVID that reviewed all of this, and they can't taste anything, and they're giving it four and a half out of five stars, they're saying, you need to go have the hot dog. And you show up and you try it and you're like, this is the worst thing that I've ever tasted. It's hard to trust things. You go to buy something on Amazon and what do you do? You jump on YouTube and you look up reviews of the, the tech gadget or whatever that you want to buy and find out, is it worth my money? Can I rely on this product? Can I trust this product? The problem is, if you're anything like me, you begin to wonder, can I trust the reviewer? So then you want reviews on the reviewer to find out who is this guy and can I trust him? You want somebody to say, hey, you should listen to this person about Apple products because they know what they're talking about. Or how about our, our political leaders in this country? How much confidence do we have in that arena right now? Yeah, we live in a world where confidence is uh, hard to come by. And yet what we find when it comes to our salvation, praise God, is that we don't have to wonder. We don't have to doubt. We don't have to say, hey, is there a reviewer on Jesus? Yeah, in essence, there was, and it's God, the Father. And what we're going to find in our passage before us this, this evening is that Jesus is a, a great high priest now that, that we can trust because he's not a high priest that the world has put forward and said, hey, here, trust this Savior, trust this Deliverer, trust this one. Rather, he's the high priest that God has put forward and said, here, trust him because he's my high priest for you. Take your Bibles, open them up to Hebrews chapter 5. And we're going to begin with the first four verses here. The writer says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Well, we've been talking about the high priest, haven't we? We talked about this last week and even before that, because we've got this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, the one who's not unable to sympathize with us, but has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, now we can draw near to the throne of God because we have a mediator. We have an intercessor, and that's what the high priest is. 
He was the one that represented men before God. He was the one that said, look, I will bring your offering and your sin offerings to appease the wrath of God. And in the Old Testament, that person went in before the, the Holy of Holies, the presence of the glory of God once a year on the Day of Atonement and brought the sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, we've got a better high priest now in Jesus. Well, one of the reasons why he's a better high priest is what our text here is going to tell us, and that is that he's God's high priest. But the first thing he does is he says, let's, let's talk about the, the human high priest for a minute. He says, for every high priest, verse 1, chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The first high priest after Moses, Moses was a quasi-high priest. He performed the title, or the, the function, if, even if he didn't have the specific title, which I think our, our writer gives him the title earlier. But the first high priest that we think of maybe in the Old Testament was Moses' brother, and his name was Aaron. Aaron, A-Aaron, right? He was the first one. <laughs> the first high priest to be appointed by God for that specific role. Exodus chapter 28 describes that. Well, the, the priesthood, much like the, the throne, much like the, the position of being king, the high priesthood was passed on from father to son throughout generations. And so you had the Aaronic line of high priests for quite a while in the Old Testament. And then by the time that David came on the scene, you had a different line of priests that were coming through. And that was the, the here's a word for you, Zadokian high priest. The priest that came from the line and the descendancy of Zadok, who was the, the high priest at the time. And then you get into the intertestamental period, and you've got this group called the Hasmoneans. And the Hasmoneans, they rise up, and they seize the high priest position in, an, in a political move, in a military move. The Hasmoneans were not appointed by God, but rather they took this for themselves when it wasn't theirs to take. And then after them, you have a, a period where the Rome, Romans come in and take over everything. And by the time you get in the New Testament, you've got a high priest serving in Israel that is appointed by and serving under the direction of the Roman authorities in Caiaphas and his father-in-law, Annas, who was the high priest before him. So you see, things kind of went downhill real fast, didn't they? Well, it, it makes sense, right? Because by the time the Hasmoneans are on the scene, guess what's no longer residing in the temple? The glory of God. In fact, even at the New Testament, when you've got Caiaphas and Annas, guess what's no longer residing in the temple? The glory of God. They have a room that they're calling the Holy of Holies, and they've got the curtain that's in the temple, because you remember when Jesus dies on the cross, that curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. But the glory of God had left the temple Back in the book of Ezekiel, sick and tired of the, the sins of Israel and the fact that there were pagan idols set up in the temple, the glory of God departed from the temple and did not come back to earth until John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father. And so what we have is we've got this kind of pseudo high priesthood going on in the New Testament when Jesus is on the scene. We've got a high priesthood that's really not a high priesthood at all. Caiaphas really is not much of a representative of, of anybody because he's playing church. He's playing the temple. He's not doing anything of significance because the glory of God is no longer there. But even still, the writer is appealing to the high priesthood and he's saying, look, the high priest, you guys know what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to represent men before God. And beyond that, he's supposed to bring sacrifices before God to atone for people's sins, to appease the wrath of God. Verse 2, it says going on that he's able to deal gently then with 
the sins of the, the people, the sins of the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Remember last week we talked about Jesus is able to sympathize with us. He's able to understand what we're going through. When God calls us to be holy, we can't say, you don't know what it's like to try to be holy in a broken and lost world. He can point to Jesus, the great high priest, and say, this one was able to sympathize with you, with you because he was tempted in every way as you are yet without sin. Well, these high priests, they can also sympathize with us. The human high priest can sympathize with those that they represent, but not because they've been tempted as they are yet without sin, but because they are, as the text says, beset with their own weaknesses. In other words, they're sinners too. When it says deal gently, it, it's a word that means to control your emotion or your passion. So that when the, the people would come into the temple with their sacrifices and ask the high priest to intercede for them, the high priest is not going to get, really, again, seriously, again, another time you need me to offer a sac. Why? Because the high priest knows that he himself needs repeated sacrifices offered on his own behalf. So he's able to be gently, gentle with the ignorant and the wayward, even though they come time and time again. Why? Because he himself also needs to become needs to have his sins atoned for time and time again. Now, the high priest, y'all, was a, a big deal. It was an office that Leviticus 21 lays out for us, had even special and, and unique requirements of its own moral standing. And so this was like a, a priest of the priest. This was a high calling to be a high priest. You had to be a man of, of upstanding character, and yet still, nonetheless, they were not infallible. They were not perfect. They were not like Jesus. And so they're able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. The ignorant and the wayward, it's a, a reference to, if you think back to the Old Testament, back to the time in uh, the book of Numbers chapter 15, which just in case you forgot what's in Numbers chapter 15, even though it's so common, everybody knows Numbers 15, right? Well, Numbers chapter 15, uh, Moses is dealing with the laws for sins of unintentionality and sins of high-handedness. Is that jogging any bells, ringing any bells, jogging any something? I don't know what you jog. You ring bells. Is that ringing any bells? There we go. And the unintentional sins were sins that were committed that the people weren't planning to commit. It's not as though they were on their beds, as the writer of Proverbs talks about the wickedness and the evil of plotting evil, plotting sin while on your bed. It's not like they were planning to sin the next day, but these are sins that we happen into. And in Numbers chapter 15, it says in verse 25, the priest shall make atonement for the congregation of the people of Israel, and they shall be forgiven because it was a mistake. Now, it was still wrong. It's still guilty. That's why atonement still needs to be made. But this was a sin of unintentionality. And they have brought their offering, a food offering to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their mistake. Verse 27, if one person sins unintentionally, it goes on, it says the high priest, again, the high priest will make atonement for him. That's what he's talking about with the ignorant and wayward. But there's a different category of sin that is talked about in Numbers chapter 15. But the person who does anything with a high hand, that means intentionally, that high hand is throwing the hand in the face of God saying, I know what your law says, I know this is wrong, I'm going to do it anyways because I want to. The person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and broken his commandment, and that person shall be utterly cut off, and his iniquity shall be on him. Okay, back in Hebrews. He's able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. We're talking about the sins of unintentionality in this context. 
In other words, the writer saying the high priest is not there to soothe the conscience of the person that continually goes out and willfully chooses to sin knowing that it's against God's will. The person that lies in their bed at night looking forward to the sin that they're going to commit the next day. So that then they can run back to the high priest and say, hey, can you atone for my sin really quick so I can go out and do this again so I can, can kind of just wipe the slate clean? And you, you may be thinking to yourself, but Pastor PJ, wait a minute, I thought you said last week it's impossible to outsin the, the blood of Christ. It is impossible to outsin the blood of Christ. It's an, impossible to sin yourself out of salvation. But you guys know my state, statement. Yes, once saved, always saved, but that implies that you're actually what? Saved. In a pattern of ongoing willful sin, without genuine repentance, y'all, is at best evidence that you have a serious problem in your relationship with the Lord, and at worst, it's evidence that you are not truly a child of God. The high priest, the sacrifice is for those that are part of God's family here. And yet even these high priests have their own sins, these weaknesses, human frailty, fleshliness, sinfulness, that they themselves need atonement for. Verse 3, because of this, his weakness, the high priest's weakness, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. One commentator pointed this out about the, the high priest's role at this time. He says this, in the, sec- the time of the second temple, the high priest customarily uttered three prayers on the day of atonement. In fact, I think I have this somewhere. Yeah, I don't know why it's way down there, but there it is. Three prayers on the day of atonement as he laid his hands on a sacrificial bull and goat. One, for his own sins and the sins of his household, the sins of his family. Two, for his own sins, those of his household, and those of the Aaronic priests. So all of the, the priests in his line he was offering atonement for and confessing sins about. And three, for the sins of the house of Israel. So the high priest is confessing his sin, the sin of his family, and the sin of all of his descendants, all of the Aaronic line of priests there, and then also the sins of Israel. And so the writer is saying, look, we have a high priest who doesn't need to do that. We have a high priest in Christ who doesn't need to offer his own sacrifice for his sin. Y'all, there's a lot of people, religious leaders out there who are going to want you to follow them. In fact, there are a lot of people out there, religious leaders who worship other gods that are going to want you to follow these other gods. But even in following their other gods, you know where they're going to place the onus for your, your goodness and your standing before the Lord, before that God, rather? They're going to put it on you. They say, you are responsible for this. You be good enough for this. And all the while, they're going to ask you, follow me when they're a fallen sinner who can't make themselves righteous any more than you and I can make ourselves righteous. You know, when it comes to Christianity, we don't have a God like that. We don't have a high priest like that either. And that's something to be encouraged by. Point number one this evening is this. Praise God you don't depend on men. Praise God you don't depend on men. Depend meaning for, for salvation. Here's the best news you're going to hear tonight. Your relationship with God isn't tied to what I can do for you. It's not tied to what your leader can do for you. It's not tied to what your parents can do for you. It's not tied to what Pastor Mike can do for you. It's not tied to what anyone, humanly speaking, can do for you. It's not about a book that's been written or a formula that's been proposed. It's not about a personality at all. It's about Jesus. Your relationship with God is dependent upon God not upon men. And that's good news. Why? Because if it was dependent on us, then we've got a problem because we, are, we need salvation. And that's his whole point here. 
the high priest, the, the, the cream of the crop in the Old Testament, they had a major flaw. They needed their sin dealt with as well. So as the people were bringing their sins to the high priest, well, where was the high priest supposed to go with his sin? He had to get atonement as well. If you had to depend on me, if you had to come to me to confess your sins to me and ask me to, to go to the Lord to pray for you so that you might receive forgiveness, well, again, you've got a problem because who would I go to? Pastor Mike. Okay. Who's Pastor Mike going to go to? John Piper. No. Right? <laughs> David Platt. Definitely not. Right. See, we've got a problem because these are just men. And men can't save us. We need a representative who doesn't need a representative. We need someone to help us, help us who doesn't need help himself. And rejoice, praise God, that you have that in Jesus. That your standing before the Lord is not dependent on men. You don't need me to run through a list of Christian leaders who have fallen to know that it happens. Students, you can't base your relationship with the Lord on a personality. Your faith can't be anchored to your favorite podcast pastor or in-person pastor. Your faith, your confidence, your trust in God, your relationship with God can't be anchored to a preaching style. Your faith can't be fueled by a friend, meaning Christianity by osmosis. You've got a friend who's on fire for Christ, and when you hang out with that person, you feel like you're on fire for Christ too, but when they're not there, you feel like you're dry. It's good to have friends that are going to push you towards Jesus. That's a great thing. But man, you can't trust their spirituality to, to ignite your spirituality. Or a leader, small group leader for that matter. To sum it up, your faith can't be in men. At the end of the day, you have to have a faith that's stable and steadfast no matter what happens. If I have a brain aneurysm right now and fall over dead, drag me off stage and somebody else get up here and finish preaching. Because it's not about me. It's not about the preacher. And I'm not saying that you guys think it is. I'm just saying I want you to be reminded and remember that what we're here to do is worship God and your relationship with God is not dependent on a preacher or a preaching style or a Bible translation. Is dependent upon God in the gospel. Always will be, period, end of story. We don't depend on men. That is such good news because humans are going to fall. They're going to let you down. They're going to disappoint you. Or your favorite preacher is going to retire, going to die. And then what are you going to do? Where's your faith at that point? The human high priests had a major weakness. But look at verse 5. The, the point, one of the points that he made in, in those opening four verses is they were what? They were appointed by God, these high priests were. They didn't claim this role for themselves unless they were the Hasmoneans, and that was wrong. They shouldn't have done that, right? But under God's design, they didn't claim this for themselves. And so look at verse 5 of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5. So also, just like those, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. Now, if anyone could have done it, Jesus could have done it. He could have said, I am the high priest. Here I am. I'm, I'm the guy. I'm the great high priest. You guys will memorize this verse later, but I'm going to be able to sympathize with you in all of those things. I'm going to be tempted like all y'all are, and I'm not going to sin. 
Therefore, you're going to be able to draw near to God through me to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. It's in the book called Hebrews. It's coming. Just get ready for it. Just letting you know ahead of time. If anybody could have come on the scene and said, here I am, it's Jesus. But he didn't. Why? Because of his humility. But also look, because of God's plan, look at the rest of verse 5. He was appointed by him, by the Father who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's the name. If you know anything about Hebrews, you've been waiting for us to get to that name because you're like, all right, preacher, what you got on that one? Let's, let's talk about this. Who's Melchizedek? What you got? Not much more than what you probably already heard, but we'll talk about him a little bit here. But y'all, like I said earlier, there, there have been various leaders that have risen to the front and said, you guys should follow me. I'm the guy. I'm the one. I'm the personality. I'm the game changer. Come after me, right? And, and they bowed up and they boasted and they said, I will be your intermediary between you and God. And I think the clearest, most classic example of this that we have is the entirety of Roman Catholicism. The popes make a living off of this, claiming a right and a position and a role that's not theirs. And they step in and they claim and they set up this hierarchy of all their, their, their minions under them, all of their cardinals and their priests to say that we need to go through them to get to God. The writer of Hebrews has a massive problem with that. In fact, I find it impossible to be a Roman Catholic and accurately understand the book of Hebrews. Because the entire system flies in the face of Jesus as our great high priest. Completely. And for the Pope to set himself up and say, I will represent you before God. In fact, for the Pope to set himself up to the point of being able to say, I can speak ex cathedra, which means I can speak something that's on par with the authority of the word of God is straight up, pure, unadulterated blasphemy. How about Joseph Smith? Another guy who rose to the front and rose to the, the scene and said, Hey, I've got a message from God. Look what I've found. I found the prophets. I've found these prophecies, and here they are. It's new revelation, and I am a prophet from God with the ability to give you new revelation, and he is putting himself into that position. Y'all, these are dangerous places for these men to be because not even Jesus exalted himself to the position of the great high priest but was appointed by God. Philippians chapter 2 comes to mind. Have this attitude amongst yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, equality with God, did not count that equality with God something to be held onto and grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's our great high priest. Not somebody who's reaching for the spotlight saying, look at me, here I am, and I've got authority. No, the, the one who said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And this is what it means that God appointed Jesus to this role. When did that take place? Well, it took place, Psalm chapter 2. Today you are a high priest. Today you are my son. That's, that's the quote that he gives there. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. 
Today you are my son. I have begotten you. This is the, the incarnation that's being referred to here. And it's a title that's given to Jesus. It's a role that's given to Jesus. It's not anything that changes about the character or quality of Jesus, okay? This is not a, something that was lacking in Christ that was at some point in time added to Christ. This was a role that he stepped into in the, the scope of time as the God who exists outside of time entered into time at the moment of the incarnation. As he enters into time, he becomes the, the, the title, son of God there, as he steps fully into that, inherits that title, also inherits the title high priest through his ministry for us. There's two major themes in the book of Hebrews, multiple major themes, but two of the major themes are Christ's sonship and his priesthood all over the book. And they're, they're two themes that are, are intimately related. In fact, in chapter one, the writer's talking about the sonship of Jesus. And he quotes from Psalm chapter two, verse seven, and Psalm 110, verse four. Now we come to, to Hebrews chapter five, and we're talking about the priesthood of Christ. And guess what the writer quotes from in the priesthood of Christ to, to demonstrate the priesthood? Psalm chapter two, verse seven, and Psalm 110, verse four. And so he's drawing this connection between Jesus' role as the son of God, right? The, 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 the heir, the, the one that was chosen to be the king, and also his role as our priest, because Jesus is the priest king. So was a guy named Melchizedek, by the way, just as a foreshadow. But there's another problem. Because the priest came through what line, by the way? Old Testament line of Rhymes with Mevi, starts with an L. You wear jeans that are by them sometimes. I don't know, maybe you don't. Levi, right? Levi. That was the, the line through which the, the priests were to descend. What, what tribe did Jesus come from? He's roaring, he's roaring, roaring like a lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah thank you. Come on, people. Don't make me sing in falsetto anymore. I don't like it. You don't like it either, right? He's Jesus of the tribe of Judah. The priests are to come through Levi. Jesus comes from Judah. What are we going to do with this? The kings came from Judah, but not the priests. And the kings and the priests were not supposed to overlap and have the same role. In fact, there was a guy named Saul that kind of got in trouble for that whole bit. You guys remember that? Well, Samuel, I didn't think that you were going to come, so I went ahead and just did something that God didn't want me to do. Okay. So what do we do with that? How can Jesus be a priest if he's not a priest after the line of Levi? Well, there must be another high priestly line that Jesus fits. Enter Melchizedek. Verse 6, as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever. This is Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? Well, he first shows up on the scene all the way back in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, it says there, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, pay attention to that phrase, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest, it says, of God most high. So there in Genesis chapter 14, 18, we learn an interesting couple of tidbits about Melchizedek. He is a priest of God most high, but he's also a, what, king. And he's the king of, of where, again? Sa Salem? Salem, Jerusalem, Sa Jer Salem, Jerusalem. 
the king of the, the city that became the king of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. Well, guess what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 5 under the reign of King David? See, when Joshua and the Israelites entered into the promised land, they were supposed to go to Jerusalem and drive out its inhabitants at the time who was a group called the Jebusites. You remember this? And they failed to drive out the Jebusites. So the Jebusites hang out in Jerusalem until David comes along. 2 Samuel chapter 5, David comes along, says, I want Jerusalem for the Lord to be the capital city. And he comes and he begins to lay siege. And the Jebusites make fun of David. They're like, yeah, right, like you're going to get us. And David conquers Jerusalem. Jerusalem then becomes the city of David and his descendants. Guess who's a descendant of David? Rhymes with Shemizus and starts with a J. Jesus. There we go. Sunday school answer. Some of you guys are like, That's, you can't say that. It's okay. So Jesus is on the scene, descendant of David from the city of David, which is Jerusalem, which is also the place that Melchizedek was the king of and a priest. And now the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is a descendant after the order of Melchizedek. I'm not saying that Jesus is an offspring of Melchizedek. He's an offspring of David. But when David took over Jerusalem, he took over the rights of the Melchizedekian line of priest kings. And now you've got Jesus descend from him. Jesus is our priest king, our great high priest king, who is after the order of Melchizedek. That's exciting. I don't that gets me fired up. It's like, whoa, this is crazy detailed. And we serve a God who's orchestrating all this. A lot of people get hung up on Melchizedek. He's like, well, it says that he didn't have any parents. What does that mean? Is this Jesus incarnate? No. Well, who is it? I, I don't know. At the end of the day, I mean, honestly, we don't know. It's, it is a mysterious figure that he has no genealogy. What does that mean? Well, I don't know. But we'll study that a little bit more when we get to chapter 7. There's this break that we're about to hit. But y'all, here's what I want you to get in this section. Jesus was not just some guy that wanted to be a hero. Right? Jesus did not show up wanting all of the attention in the spotlight. If he did, he picked a horrible way to show up. Showing up as a, a baby. Coming from Nazareth. Right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Being born in Bethlehem. You, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, too small to be named amongst the clans of Judah. Out of you will come forth a ruler. The son of a, a carpenter not living in the lap of luxury, not born into a palace, whose dad dies at some point in his, in his childhood. We don't know when, but at some point before his beginning of his earthly ministry, his dad's no longer there on the scene. He's got his mom hanging out with him. He comes on the scene as this itinerant preacher that doesn't have a home, doesn't have a house to, to lay his head. If Jesus wanted the spotlight, he sure missed the memo on, on how to go about making a grand entrance. But still, what we read here is that he was God's man. He was God's high priest. He was God's chosen one to be our high priest. For that, we can be thankful. Point number two tonight is this. Recognize that Jesus is that. He's God's high priest. Meaning nobody else lays claim to that. No pope, no ruler, no religious leader, no cult leader. Nobody can stand up and say, I am sent by God to be his representative to you. No, we have one, and that's Jesus. 
There's one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Don't come at me telling me I need to go confess my sins to some human being to have them forgive me. No, I have God to forgive me. Now, should we confess our sins to one another? Yes, but that's only because James tells us that we should be doing that. It's a good thing for us to do. But I don't offer you absolution. That's not mine to give you. God offers you that. Through who? Through Jesus, his high priest, the one high priest. Jesus was not the last one to come on the scene to claim to be the Messiah. There were many others, and there will still be others. In fact, that's one of the signs of the end times. There will be those that rise up and say, look, I'm him. Jesus says, don't go after them. In fact, in AD 132 to 135, there was another guy that came on the scene whose name is Simon Bar Kokhba, and he's the gen- gentleman on the, the white horse in the middle of the picture there with elf ears. Um, seriously, I think this is where the Lord of the Rings got the, the pointy ear going up on the, you guys see it there in the side? It's a helmet, but still, I think it contains the ear. Um, just use your imagination. Get there with me. Come on. Anyways, Simon Bar Kokhba showed up on the scene and said, I'm the guy, and he grabbed the position and the title for himself. I'm the Messiah. I will lead you out. Well, the problem is Simon Bar Kokhba was killed in, in battle and didn't rise from the dead. There was another guy. I don't have a picture of him, but this guy's name was Moses of Crete. Moses of Crete came on the scene in about 448 AD and drew a, a group of people to himself claiming to be Moses, brought back again, saying, I will lead you back into the promised land got a group of Jewish people together and said, I will lead you back through the Red Sea just as Moses led Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. I'm going to bring you back and lead you through the Red Sea on dry ground. And there were people that followed him all the way to the the edge of the sea and they went up on a precipice and Moses of Crete said, okay, in you go, God will part the sea and you will cross into the promised land under the promise of God because I am the Messiah. And the people began to jump off the precipice and they fell to their deaths, either drowned or smashed on the rocks underneath. Meanwhile, Moses of Crete faded into the background and disappeared. Nobody ever heard from him again. One more recent who was before your time, but certainly I remember it, especially growing up in Texas. Waco, Texas used to be known not only for Baylor, but for another guy named David Koresh. David Koresh came on the scene claiming to be Jesus. And he led captive a large group of followers and they holed up in a place called the Branch Davidian Compound. Turned into an awful, awful massacre. The building burned to the, to the ground and women and children died and he died at the same time in it. But another failed Messiah. Now what I want you to see is there's nobody else but Jesus. You don't need anyone else but Jesus for your standing before God. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. There is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. None other than the name of Jesus Christ. This was not a power grab by somebody who wanted fame, position, and power. It was not a hostile takeover on Jesus' part. No, this was God installing his high priest. And what's more, there's no other option, no other representative other than Christ. Here's what that also means for us, y'all. If this is God's high priest and you're in Christ and you say, I get it, he's my high priest and he's interceding for me, that's awesome. Here's what I also want you to think about tonight. He's also God's high priest for your family members and your coworkers and your neighbors and the pe- people that you see at the store, the people that we go out at, on, on Spectrum Evangelism Nights and Evangelize to. He's also the only high priest that's, that's available to them as well. 
So if your family members are trusting in their works, they're not trusting in the right high priest. Or if they're trusting in a pope, they're not trusting in the right high priest. If they're trusting in Joseph Smith, they're not trusting in the right high priest. If they're trusting in Richard Dawkins, they're not trusting in the right high priest. And so this should also spur us on to want to say, to, to go out to them and say, look, your faith needs to not be in men, including ultimately yourself, because for some of them, they are their high priest that they're trusting in. But it needs to be in the only suitable high priest, God's high priest, and that is Jesus. Y'all, there's a blessing in the confidence that we have in Christ and who he is, that God has confirmed him this way. These are not unfounded claims. This is not man-made religion. This is not a guy with magic tricks saying, hey, I'm here, look at me, follow me. It's the son of God, installed by God, appointed by God to be our high priest. Look at verse seven. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is a description of how, that's my words, not Jesus' words anymore. I highlighted too far. But here you have now a, a, a shift from here's the, the human high priest, here's Jesus, and now here's what Jesus' high priesthood looked like. In verses 7 through 10. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. What scene is that that he's talking about here? The garden of... The garden of... There's two gardens in the Bible. One's at the beginning, one's towards the end. Three gardens in the Bible. One's in the middle endish, and then one's at the very end. The garden of what? Not, not Eden. Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane, right? Luke, Luke's gospel records that he was in such agony that his sweat became like drops of blood, right? Just dripping profusely from him. He prays how many times for the cup to pass? At least three. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Now, none of those accounts describe him crying. But if he's in such agony that he's sweating so profusely and crying out three times, let this cup pass from me, is it too far for us to imagine or understand that he was most likely also weeping as he's praying in the garden before being arrested, betrayed, or betrayed, arrested, mocked, flogged, beaten, crucified for us. See, this is the, the, the depiction of the, the culmination of the sacrifice. The high priest was there to offer a sacrifice for the atonement of sins. And now the writer of Hebrews is saying, you want to know what your great high priest, you know what, want to know what God's high priest's sacrifice was? And he brings us to the Garden of Gethsemane, to the, the angst that Jesus felt there, where you see the, the, the unique glimpse into the, the hypostatic union, that he's fully God and fully man. And in his flesh, his humanity, his human will there, is saying, look, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, let it be so. But yet there's a complete submission to the divine will because he says, yet not my will, but your will be done. See, there's one divine will shared by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jesus, as the, the, the Son of God incarnate, shared that divine will, and yet as man, he had his own fleshly will that, that was there. Not fleshly in the sense that it was sinful, but simply that he was fully man, so he had a will about him. 
And in that will, he did not want to suffer what he was about to suffer. And so he prayed and he was in angst and he's in tears, it says here in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Praying to him who's able to save him from death. That's a reference to the Father. The Father is the one who's able to deliver us. We talked about this earlier in the book of Hebrews. From the fear of death. Well, he was able to deliver Jesus from the anxiety and the angst that he had. Not a sinfulness, but just the, the angst over what was in front of him. He had the ability to do that. But yet we read here this weird phrase, he was heard because of his reverence. Well, that seems to imply on the surface that God answered his prayer by delivering him. But did that happen? Let me rephrase that. Did the cross happen? Yes. So God didn't deliver him from the thing that he was praying, if there's any other way, let this cut pass from me. So what does the writer mean that he was heard because of his reverence? Well, it means that he was heard because of his submission to the will of God. That phrase, yet not my will, but your will be done. That reverence, that fear of God, that trust in God, that confidence in God, that was Christ's and also should be ours. Some of y'all would do well to remember that even when your prayers aren't answered the way that you want them to, they're still being answered. They're still heard. Because your call is not to submit to the will of God when his will conforms to your will, but to submit to the will of God when your will conforms to his will. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. It's a weird statement as well, isn't it? To think of Jesus learning. But we know in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that it says that he was learning, advancing in learning, right? As he's growing up. What does this mean that he learned obedience through what he suffered? Well, when he became flesh, Jesus experienced two things he had never experienced before, ever. Ever. The first was suffering. And the second was this need to continually depend upon and rely on and submit to the will of the Father. Through that suffering. That's what it means that he learned obedience through what he suffered. This is not that he was lacking in something, but that something was added to him, right? Just like when he took on flesh, it's not that he was lacking something that was, that was added to him in a way that made him better when he became flesh. He just simply added something to himself. Well, here he's adding this learning of what it means to be obedient to the will of God even through suffering. Verse 9, then that's what the author means when it says, and being made perfect. Okay, this is not a, a perfection of moral nature. This is not a perfection in quality, but a perfection in qualification. He's being made completely qualified to be your high priest. Being made perfect in qualification, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What, what type of salvation is he the source of here? What does it say in that verse, verse 9? What, what's the modifier there? What, what kind of salvation? Eternal salvation, right? It's like when Jesus is talking about eternal life in the Gospels. Again, this is evidence of your eternal security in Christ. God doesn't give you six-week life. He doesn't give you six-month life. 
right? He doesn't give you six-year life. He gives you eternal life. Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. To all who, what do you want him to say there? To all who what? What do you want there to be right there? What do you want that word to be? Come on, Pauline audience. What do you guys want that to be? Believe him? Who, all who have faith in him? All who have, insert Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 here. Right? But he says obey him. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that this is a works-based salvation? No. What he means by this is that we follow Christ's example by continually submitting ourselves to the will of the Father, that we continue to answer the call that has been placed on our lives. As Christ obeyed the Father, we obey as well. We endure, we persevere, which is what Jesus was doing there in the garden, trusting the will of God. And if we endure and persevere in our obedience to God through continued and ongoing faith in Christ and in his promises that he will sustain us and deliver us, we will experience eternal salvation. So this is not about you earning your salvation. It's about what the writer has already been talking about in the letter and will continue to talk about, which is our enduring and persevering all the way to the end. That's the obedience that's in view here in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 10. Here's the thrust of what he's saying, y'all. Jesus didn't quit on you. Don't quit on Jesus. And that's really so much of the context of this epistle that he's writing. Writing to people who are looking at at things going, man, it's getting kind of hard to be a Christian. I don't know if I want to be a Christian anymore. Maybe I want to go back. He's saying, don't go back. Consider your high priest, the one God appointed and put in this position. Oh yeah, the one who suffered so much that he was praying and, and pleading and crying that the Father might remove this cup from him, and yet he remained submissive to the will of God. You too remain submissive just like he remained submissive. Our point number three tonight is this, last one. Endure in your salvation secured by Jesus suffering. Endure, persevere, keep going, keep pressing on. Don't lose heart. Don't lose faith. Stay the course in your salvation secured by Jesus suffering. Before Jesus, no high priest was called to suffer like this. But also before Jesus, no high priest could offer you the salvation that Jesus offers you. But that suffering, while primarily aimed at Securing the satisfaction of God's wrath also had another purpose for us. And that is that it might become a a template or a model for us to follow in our own lives. First Peter chapter two, verses twenty-one through twenty-five, you'll you'll hit on this during your small group time as well, says this for to, to this you have been called. Okay, he's writing to Christians. Peter says, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. He's talking about Christians who are going to suffer for their faith. He's saying, look, you've been called to suffer for your faith. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threatened, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree in order that for the purpose that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
Y'all, if you are not suffering in your walk with Christ, if you don't find there to be anything difficult about being a Christian, you're not doing it right. You live in the world. James says friendship with the world is what with God? Enmity, hostility towards God, which means friendship with God is what towards the world? Hostility, enmity towards this world. If you find that your walk with Jesus is a walk in the park, it's all roses and daisies and pink fluffy clouds, then I think there might be something off. We should find it hard to be a believer. And y'all, we're living in a culture where it's not getting easier to be a believer, to be a follower of Jesus. It's not an easy thing for you to be a Christian. It's not an easy thing for you to say no to your flesh, right? I mean, if nothing else, we should all be able to say, hey, that's a way that we all have to, to face this suffering in this world is this world appeals to our fleshly desires every, everywhere we look. And yet, what do we have to do? What are we called to do as, as followers of Jesus? Say no to our flesh. That's hard to do. How about saying no just to the world? Forget your flesh and the, the values of this world. To be willing to be called names like bigoted and homophobic and racist and all these other things that people are going to throw at you because you are holding fast to a biblical worldview. That's hard. That's not an easy thing to do. Facing persecution, whether that's mockery, insults, Losing a job, missing out on a work opportunity. Injustice. Potentially in the future, physical persecution. That's a hard thing for us to do. Why do we do it? Because we are followers of Jesus. We're marked for these things. How about just grieving a broken world? You know, on the one hand, we celebrated recently with Texas passing the, the fetal heartbeat law, the, the six-week anti-abortion law, that it's illegal to abort a, a, a baby, a child, a human being, after six weeks, which all but makes it impossible to have an abortion. Well, our illustrious governing leaders have seen fit to try to cram a law now down the throats of everybody in our country that uh, makes it codified in the law books, like Roe versus Wade, to now legalize abortion for all nine months of a pregnancy. That is nothing short of hideous, grotesque, disgusting, evil vileness. And if you don't read the head, maybe you don't even read the headlines. But as you open up and you read the headlines of what's going on in this world, there should be something in you that recoils from that. It's not easy to be a Christian. It's not getting easier to be a Christian either. Guys, if you are waiting for the next presidential election so that things get back to... It's not your hope. Your hope cannot be that Trump rallies back and wins and storms the White House and takes it again. That cannot be your hope. And if it is, you have a lousy savior. Your hope cannot be that it's going to be easier for you to be a Christian the way that it was easy for mom and dad to be a Christian. That cannot be your hope. Because it's not going to be. 
I think your generation is going to be one of the first to face real, serious, hard persecution in this country for what it looks like to be a, a follower of Jesus. And so decide now, are you in or are you, or, or are you out? Because if you are in, the call here is to follow the example of Jesus, the one who sympathized with you. Not just was he tempted by uh, things that are sinful, but man, tempted to call down the legion of angels to just be done with it at the cross. When people are hurling insults at him saying, you who saved others, save yourself. Hey, where are the angels that can save you from the cross? You don't think that appealed to him as a, as a man on the cross to go, I can do that, I'm God. But because I love you so much, I'm not going to. And we just want Christianity to be easy. We want him to be our high priest to make our lives comfortable. That's not what he's there to do. He's there to secure eternal life for you, not this life for you. That's why Peter's saying, look, don't be surprised when you face trials. They're going to come. Instead, when you face opposition and trials, look to Jesus because he's done it before you. He's endured this already. And he provided a template, an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Y'all, if you're sitting there going, man, God must not love me because I'm suffering, what does that tell you about your view of God's view of Jesus? God's love for you is not contingent on your circumstances. It's so much bigger than that. He loves you more than your health. He loves you more than your marriage in the future. He loves you more than your school right now. He loves you more than your work. He loves you more than your dreams, your ambitions. He loves you so much more than that. That's why Jesus came to deal with your real issue, which is the fact that you were alienated from him by your sin. That's where the love of God is. And now you're his, but you're living behind enemy lines in a lost world that's getting worse and worse and worse by the day. And it's not going to get better. But y'all, if you compromise now and you say, all right, well, I'm out because I want an easy life. Have your easy life. Die whenever you're going to die. Because, man, let me just tell you, unbelievers get cancer and die young too. And realize that the rest of eternity is going to be a miserable, literal hell for you. Or... Say, I'm all in with Christ. He's my high priest. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to endure and follow his example and press on and continue entrusting myself to him who judges justly as he did and know that you may live till you're 80 and have a miserable existence for the rest of your life here, but that's going to be a blip on the radar for the eternity that you're going to be with him free from all of that. The question is, which one's worth it? Endure. Christian, because your hope is not in this world. Endure, Christian, and be salt and light in this world. Endure, Christian, and be an ambassador for your great high priest in this world. There's a, <laughs> debating right now in my mind. There's a movie, Monty Python and the Quest for the Holy Grail. There's a scene in the, in the movie that gets me every time. It's the Black Knight, the sword fighting scene. Some of you guys who have seen it, all the guys out there that are single have seen this movie. <laughs> I, and I love you guys because I've seen it too, and I'm referencing it while I'm preaching. I just didn't tell my wife how much I liked it before I got married. So pro tip, guys, just maybe lay out on that one. Anyways, there's this battle scene, and they're fighting, and the, the Black Knight loses an arm. 
And the guy who's fighting him is like, all right, well, there, it's, it's over. The war's over. The battle's over. Let me pass. And the guy goes, what are you, what are you talking about? He's like, well, dude, I just, your arm's on the ground. He's like, that's ah, a flesh wound. I'm good to go. Let's keep going. So he switches swords. And if I get the limbs out of order, don't come talk to me afterwards, you Monty Python addicts. But then he, he cuts off his leg. Or it, anyways, this guy ends up with like nothing. No limbs at all. He's, he's stumps for his legs and his arms. And the guy's like, okay, the, the battle's over. I'm going to get by you now. And the guy's like, no, no, no. Come back here and fight like a man, you coward. He says, I'll bite your legs off as the guy's walking away, right? And it's, it's meant to be ridiculous and absurd and, and funny. And yet, Christians, that's what we need to be in this world. If the, this world takes off your arm, it hasn't won. I'm not talking physically, literally. I'm just talking if this world begins to hurt you. As long as you still have breath, preach Christ. Be that ambassador. Because the battle's not done. Jesus still has a call on your life. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, we'll get there eventually. It says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Jesus, who endured such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Because look what he says. This is similar to where we're at. He says, look, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, he's saying, look, that, that persecution that started to cost lives hasn't come to you guys yet. He says, so press on. Not that when it does, you should give up, but he's just saying, for Jesus, it cost him his life. Y'all, is your confidence tonight in Christ or is it in something else? Someone else. We talked about it last week. Who or what are you trusting in to get past death? Look, some of y'all in this room won't even eat a burger without consulting like 3,000 Yelp reviews first but you're willing to gamble your eternity on you being a good enough person. Guess what? The Bible has provided the ultimate review on you, and here it is. You're not good. One review, zero stars, definitive. So if you're trusting in yourself, it's bad news. But here's the good news. The Bible, while providing the definitive review, has also provided the definitive solution, and that is God's high priest, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd give us a greater understanding, appreciation, love for Christ, to see more of the sufficiency of his sacrifice, his work for us, to appreciate more of his humility on our behalf, that he's not a a celebrity pastor or a celebrity cult leader that wants everybody to, to praise them and worship them, but that he was the lamb of God who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now he is interceding for us before your throne. Father, we're grateful that our salvation does not depend on men because there's no man who can get us over the greatest problem that we have, and that is our hostility towards you because of our sin, but we have that in Christ. Lord, we recognize and, and understand and confess and acknowledge that this world that we live in is gonna be a hard place to live, a hard place to be a believer, a hard place to be a follower of Jesus. 
And so, God, we ask that you would enable us to endure, that you would enable us to remember that we are aliens and strangers, and yet what's coming is so much better than any comfort this world might offer us if we were to jump ship now. Lord, I pray that nobody will. I pray that you would steal our strength and our resolve and our commitment and our affirmation and our trust and our confidence that Jesus is all that we need, that he is our great high priest because he's your high priest that you have provided for us. And we praise you and thank you for that in his name. Amen.